Now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you to beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask, who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it? Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask, who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it? No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, thank you, Graham. So, over this special weekend then, we will have done three things by the end of today. We've thought about our heritage that God has given us in this church. And it was great to have so many people coming in yesterday. I think we had over 70, well over 70, coming and reading all the information about St. Paul's and discovering what is inside here, the building they may have passed so many times. So we've thought about our heritage as a church. We've thought about harvest and the wealth and resources that God has given us. But we've also thought about our history, the incredible story of the origin and establishment of the people of God, of whom we are their spiritual descendants. What happened to them then is of direct relevance to us now. Their story is our story. And as we've seen through this series, there is so much that we can learn from it. So what I'm going to do now is is unpack and and build on that passage from Deuteronomy and really uh, tackle three things now. Firstly, the message for Israel. What did it mean for them then? Secondly, the fulfilment through Jesus. 
How did Jesus fulfill all that was promised there? And finally, what's the challenge for us? How would God have us live differently in the light of all that we've read? So let me just pray for us now before uh, we get underway and ask that God's will will be done. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for our forefathers, both those in the Bible and those like Martin Luther King who did great things in more recent times. Thank you that you are alive. Thank you that your spirit is with us. Thank you that your word is living and active. And Father, we pray that you would challenge us, you would convict us, and that you would inspire us to choose life and live the life in all its fullness that you've called us to. For your glory, for your sake. Amen. So, on with the sermon. And my first point is perhaps the obvious one to make on a Harvest Sunday. God provides. But that is, of course, something we can easily lose sight of, as Jeff said, in the 21st century, when thinking, for example, about the food that we eat. For a farmer may have grown or reared it. A wholesaler may have sorted it. A butcher may have killed it and cut it. A supermarket may have packaged it. And our salary or pension may have paid for it. But ultimately, God provides He gave us the resources in the world that he has made. He gave us the skills and the intelligence to make use of it. And when we don't have the resources available, the testimony of God's people throughout the ages is that when they pray to him and trust in him, when they share with him their need, he delivers, he provides. And we've seen that in so many ways through our series, haven't we? Since May, we've gone through those first few books of the Bible. We started in Genesis, which was really the story of a family. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Then we moved on to Exodus, where after 400 years, we discover at the beginning of Exodus that Joseph's descendants are numerous. Numerous, but unhappy. They're in slavery. Jealous, the Egyptians had inflicted slave labor upon them and they're crying out to God but in Exodus it's a people it's no longer just a family a people who need rescuing and Exodus as the name suggests is all about their escape from Egypt what comes next is that journey in the wilderness 40 years slightly longer than our sermon series Jeff but it's got a four in it (laughs) and their preparation for their destiny nationhood in the promised land. That's where today's passage finds us. If you look, go back to that map that we showed a moment ago, you'll see that where they are at this moment is the top of the red line, just where the River Jordan hits the Dead Sea. That's the border from Moab into Canaan. That's where they were camped, and that's where the whole of Deuteronomy is written or delivered by Moses. The pep talk the final instructions before under Joshua, anointed to replace Moses, they entered Canaan, the promised land. Yet throughout it all, we've seen that God has provided. Go back to Abraham, we see it in the ram in the thicket, just as he was about to kill Isaac. We see it in the food in the famine through Joseph, 
and all that God did through him despite being sold to slavery by his brothers. We saw it in the manna and the quail in the desert with Moses. We saw it in the plagues. We saw it in the water from the stone. And we saw it in so many other ways. As God's people trusted him, he protected and he provided, often in truly miraculous ways. But the key point about God's provision was that it wasn't primarily physical. It's so easy to think that's what it's all about. But that was just the means to an end. The key provision was spiritual. It was relational. God revealed himself to them. The God who made them wanted to be in a relationship with them. That was the most important thing. That was the revolutionary thing. And he gave them his law so that they would know how to live. As the passage we read said, it was in their mouth and in their heart. The law was precious. It was God's revealed means by which the people of God could worship him, by which they could please him, by which they could live and be distinctive from those around them, and by which they could then be a light to the Gentiles and could point them to Israel's one true God. And he gave them a mechanism too through the Day of Atonement by which they could be forgiven. We looked at that a few weeks ago. He gave them the Year of Jubilee. We looked at that the the next week. And all these things would come together when he made them a nation. God's chosen people under God's protection, living under God's laws in the promised land. Deuteronomy is the final instructions before they get there. Next week, under Joshua, they arrive. But with that provision came conditions. And we see it in our passage there in pretty stark terms, let's be honest. I set before you, it said, life and prosperity. That's on the one side. And on the other, death and destruction. And the challenge was clear. To love the Lord your God. To walk in obedience. To steer clear of idols. Do that And the rewards were enormous. Life and longevity. Peace and prosperity. So that was the message for Israel. The rest of the Old Testament tells us how they got on. And how did they get on? Well, there were some successes early on, both under the judges. And then in the early years, as a kingdom, they defeated the Philistines under their first king, Saul. They established Jerusalem under their second king, David. They built the magnificent temple under their third king, Solomon. The nation expanded. The queen of Sheba came. The economy flourished. They were famous throughout the known world. But ultimately, it ended in failure. The kings that followed rebelled. The people rebelled, with just a few notable exceptions like Hezekiah and Josiah. Death Division and destruction were the outcome. Battles were lost. The kingdom was divided into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom around Jerusalem of Judah. Before they were both ultimately conquered, first by Assyria in the north and then by the Babylonians in the south. Yes, there was a brief comeback under Ezra and Nehemiah. The people did repent. They did return from exile. The law was rediscovered. The walls and the temple were rebuilt. But it wasn't the same. And it didn't last. Everything was a pale shadow of its former self. 
and there were no more kings. And soon enough, still more powerful occupiers came. First the Greeks, led by Alexander the Great. Then the greatest empire of them all, the Romans. Israel, as a sovereign nation, was finished. So had God's purposes failed? The answer is no, as we move now on to our second section, the fulfilment through Jesus. For that's the key. Although Israel had failed, God's purposes had not. And we see hints of it as early as God's promises to Abraham. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, what does God say to Abraham? He says, yes, I will make you into a great nation through Isaac, the miracle child. But he added this, such important, important words. And through you and through your descendants, the whole world will be blessed. So that was the promise that Abraham reiterated to Isaac and Jacob and to Moses. But we see it with David as well. To David, God promised a a descendant of his who would reign on his throne forever. Someone far greater than Solomon. Someone who would be sent by God. Who would be God's ruler for the rest of time. Who was it? Who was it that would do that? Well, we get a clue when we look back at Deuteronomy 30 and the instructions to Israel. Because we see there the promise of peace and prosperity, life and longevity depended on them keeping their side of the bargain. And the history of Israel as an independent nation showed clearly that they couldn't do it. They didn't love God, nowhere near enough. They didn't walk in obedience to him, keeping his commands decrees and laws. Rather, their hearts did turn away and they were drawn to bow down and worship other gods, even though they knew that the God of Israel was the one true God. So God was faithful to his promises, even in his judgment of Israel. For he'd actually done exactly what he said he would do if they turned against him. For God all along was looking for a faithful people, One who would share his heart and his desire to reach out beyond Abraham's physical descendants to all those around the world who were open to him. That was God's intention. That was God's heart. And so the challenge became, as the Old Testament developed, that no one in Israel seemed capable of delivering it. No one was capable of leading them to obedience, peace and prosperity. The outcome God longed for. The problem being, as it had always been, the problem of the sin of the human heart. So in the low times of the exile in 600 or so BC, when some of the most famous prophets were active, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel and the like, a new picture began to emerge. In it, exile represented sin and judgment. But prophecies of a new suffering servant Emerged one who God Himself would send to rescue His people. Yes, in a in a minor way, fulfilled in Ezra and Nehemiah, but clearly with a far greater goal, a far greater mission in mind. The suffering servant that Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 49, 52, 53, and others is clearly pointing to someone else, someone God would send, someone who was God Himself. 
One who would actually love the Lord his God with all his strength, with all his mind and with all his heart. One who would, would become the one who had ascended into heaven and then proclaimed the message of truth and obedience to those on earth. And he would be the one who would obey completely, even if it led him to die a criminal's death on the cross. And what was his message? That he, the word, as the prologue to John's gospel proclaims, full of grace and truth, had come into the world. The word who upon his arrival, like Deuteronomy 30, proclaimed that all they really needed, the kingdom of God, was near. And just as at the end of Deuteronomy 30, where it says, now choose life, that you and your children may live, and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. Well, that's what the Messiah, the sinless descendant of David, the everlasting king, would do and say. His message was this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he would proclaim that the thief, Satan, the enemy of God, came only to steal and destroy and kill. But that he, the Messiah, the greater one, came that all God's people may have life and have it to the full. As another translation puts it, have it, life, abundance a life of abundance. And in the end, as he looked ahead to his own death as an atoning sacrifice that would remove the need for any other sacrifice, he gave his own final sermon to his disciples with his final instructions on how how they could fulfill God's purposes in their promised land. We read them in John chapter 15. He said this, I am the vine, you are the branches, If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withered. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So... Where does that take us? My final point today is this. What is the challenge for us? And I think it takes us to the point of recognising that judgement is still a reality. Jesus still sets out before us life and prosperity, death and destruction. But now we're not doing it alone. We're not doing it without God's Holy Spirit sent to make the impossible possible and transform the inclination of our hearts. With love, again, the motivation and the only appropriate response, Jesus added, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. This is the most wonderful, precious love relationship. It's about God's love for us shown in Jesus Christ. And it's about our love in response, given back to the one who gave us everything. And Jesus added at the end of that chapter, all this I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, 
whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things, will remind you of everything I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. Peace I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So then, in the light of all that, let us read again those final challenging words of Deuteronomy 30. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I've set before you life and death, blesses and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life. So, what's your choice? What will you choose today? Do you want life in all its fullness? Do you want abundant life? And it's here where I think the sermon turns for full circle. For as St. Paul would say it decades later, reflecting on the nature of the calling of the Christian life, he said this, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we started with harvest, didn't we? We acknowledge that God provides. He gives us the harvest in terms of all the physical resources we need and all the spiritual resources we need too. We finish, though, with the reality that this is, in fact, all for a higher purpose, that the harvest God is most interested in is the harvest of our character transformation and the harvest of our spirit-led, spirit-empowered service of him, seeking to draw others into his kingdom, seeking to build others up within his kingdom. Jesus put it like this, Do not worry about what you will eat, what you will wear, what you will drink, where you will live, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will be given to you. So I want to finish just by reminding us of some of the opportunities that we have ahead of us this month. We've already had the Heritage Day. We've had the Would You, Abaddon and Eve night. They went really well. But what have we got coming up next week? We've got the point service for young adults and youth. Who could you bring to that? Or could you come along at 6 o'clock to High Cross Church and join the team praying for that service? Join the team praying as people come in there for the first time. Join the team praying as we try to establish a community together and give confidence to those young people and young adults that this is something that can flourish. Can you help us with that? Can you bring a young person to that service so they get a chance to be part of that exciting new work among their age group in this town? So that's the point. What about Oasis, our new ministry to those available during the day? An untapped mission field, undoubtedly, for us as a church. So many people out there are lonely. So many people on their own. So many people out there don't have as much to do as they was like. So many people out there are looking for community and love and friendship. So many people out there are looking for practical help. And actually, whether they recognize it or not, they also need spiritual help. I've seen it elsewhere. If we really throw ourselves into a ministry of friendship, 
scratching where people in our community are itching. If we invite them along, bring them along, welcome them, befriend them, then a few months or a few years down the line, people will come to faith. I think of the church that I was in two years ago. Started a ministry like that with humble beginnings. Two years later, there were 150 coming to every meeting. It can happen here too. God can do amazing things. He can do it through us. And let me just remind you finally about Alpha. Over a million people in England have done Alpha. It's been done by many multiple millions across the world. The reason it's been so successful is God is in it. It's well crafted. The formula's good. Food, fun, a talk, a discussion. We've got another opportunity here for young people, for adults. Who do you know that you could invite? Remember what Michael Harvey told us. Let's celebrate the no's. Let's not avoid asking in case they don't say yes. Let's try and get the no's. Because if we know if we get the no's, somewhere along the line, we'll get a yes too. And that matters more than anything else. So I want to leave you with that challenge. Over the next few weeks, can you play your part in what God longs to do to see his kingdom grow, new people brought in, the love of God shown in action and in words? And will you choose to consecrate yourself, to choose to live a holy life, to choose to listen to God, to choose to obey him? Choose not to be content with mediocrity, with just fitting in, going through the motions, fulfilling the expectations that you feel most people have of a Christian in church. Might you instead choose something far greater, something that Martin Luther King pursued, his unique calling a cause that he could campaign for, a suffering that he could seek to remove, a people he could lead. But each of us has a calling. Each of us has a mission that God has given to us. Each of us has works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. The question is, will you lay everything down? Will you humble yourself before him? Will you ask him to fill you by his spirit? And will you, listening to his voice, obediently serve him? Whatever the costs, whatever the opposition, whatever the challenges might be. I want to leave us with that challenge now. And I thought it would be good, actually, just to give us an opportunity to physically respond. So if you feel God is challenging you today about what choosing life means for you i want you to step forward in a moment for choosing life is not just about choosing our own eternal life it's not just about choosing abundant life life in all its fullness for ourselves it's about choosing life for others it's about being a life giver it's about being part of the harvest it's about being the person following the calling that he made you to be.
I can invite the band just to just to come up and uh, perhaps play something just uh, behind us as we're um, just having this opportunity to respond. So, if you want to consecrate yourself, commit yourself again to choose life, to lay down the distractions, and offer yourselves to God afresh. Can I invite you to do that? Just make your way forward. And we're just going to kneel just here in this front area on the steps. We've already given food and other things to bless others for Besom. Why don't we today on this Harvest Sunday also offer ourselves to be used by him? So anyone who wants to come up, wants to take this moment to put a line in the marker in the stand and say, that's for me. Just gather around here and then I, together with Jeff, we'd love to pray for you uh, just uh, that you might receive the spirit and you might walk in the calling that he's got for you. So come. Come not because you're strong, but because you're weak. Not because you're great, but because he is.